everyone, my name is Arti, and this is the Mahabharata. Episode 60 Killer Bones and Savage Sons, also available online at www.themahabharatapodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash the Mahabharata podcast. In our last episode, the Pandavas commenced a lengthy course of pilgrimage intended to distract them from missing Arjuna. Their guide is Rishi Lomish, who's not important for our purposes, but is literally a godsend. They'll do a clockwise tour of central to north India, swinging east and west to spaces of the most exotic law, visiting hundreds of sites. In the south, they'll pause at the Vindhya Mountains, which have special interest for the figure we met last time, the legendary sage Agastya. Agastya is an old soul who's been about the world a long, long time. In the last episode, we saw him get a proper dressing down by his ancestors, who demand that he marry. He makes heroic efforts to that end, rivaling those of any groom on The Bachelor. But given disappointing results, he evolves the somewhat unorthodox solution of handcrafting a bride, the luscious Lopamutra, who would seem to definitively settle the nature-nurture question for all posterity. Though crafted to be the epitome of feminine virtue, demure and compliant, Lulu turns out to be quite a resourceful creature with a mind of her own. She marries Augustia to spare her parents' wrath, but will not oblige him sexually until she gets what she wants, the household comfort he so studiously shunned in his reclusive lifestyle. It's a delightfully unexpected scene that leaves us tickled. And prompt some questions, right? If Augustia has the godlike power to create life, why not go for a full grown woman, bypassing potty training and teenage angst? For that matter, why not bypass the wife altogether? And given the urgency of his ancestor's predicament, just create a son, as we'll see others do very shortly. And why stop there? Why suffer the indignities of begging for wealth when all you need do is assemble bits of Versailles, Buckingham and the Istana Nurul-Liman Palace in Brunei and bam, you've got a home with 2,000 rooms and 300 bathrooms. We can only speculate. What we know for sure though is Augustia and Lopamudra are a celebrated couple in Hindu law, both poets of the Rig Veda, known for their out-of-the-box thinking. To get to the next bit of Augustia law, today we must kill a dragon. The Mahabharata tells us how, in the tale of Indra and his arch-nemesis, Vritra. Now, even if you're a devoted Indophile, or India's your sacred Matrabhumi, you've probably never heard of the battle between Indra and Vritra. And chances are, after this episode, it'll topple out of your head and run away, which is fine. But the clash between the chief of the god Indra and the Asura Vritra is one of the defining events of the Rig Veda. It's the early days of creation. 
the universe is young and still in formation. And Vritra is this great beast who's holding the world's waters captive in a mountain. Obviously, life can't be without water, but the gods are having a real problem sorting Vritra out. Then Grandfather Brahma has a brainwave. Hey, I know. Why don't you get the bones of Rishi Dhadicha and using them fashion a weapon? I can just feel it in my bones. That's the instrument to destroy Vritra. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, I don't. But I'll tell you what I'm thinking, which is, um, what? There's a monster, let's say a leviathan. It must be killed. Slings and arrows won't do it, nor will an AK-203 Kalashnikov assault rifle. But the bones of an old dude fashioned into a weapon. The gods don't argue. But how do you ask a man for his bones, they ponder. Do you offer titanium implants, trip to the Galapagos, shopping allowance, open bar? Yet again, for such a request is unclear. After some debate, they conclude the best way is the direct way. They knock on the Rishi's door and politely ask for his bones. What do you mean now? You don't want to wait till I die first? The gods earnestly explain it's a matter of urgency. The Rishi offers them tea and refreshments while he chews on the matter. Then to their great relief, he agrees. Okay, I'll just kill myself. I mean, I've had a good life, right? Nobody lives forever. But I can't guarantee the state of the bones. They might need some cleaning. The gods assure him they'll take care of everything. Right then. The Rishi calls his attorney and updates his will, designating the gods the rightful beneficiaries of his bones. Then he kills himself. Delicately, of course, so as not to damage the bones. So helpful. The gods are amazed at his generosity. Taking the bones, they craft a mighty thunderbolt. Then with the combined energy of all the gods, Indra kills Vritra using the thunderbolt. Vritra's dam now broken, the waters are released and splash jubilantly all across the earth. That's how we have crops and food and swimming pools, Rishi Lomash beams to the Pandavas. Brilliant story, right? So inspiring about the value of teamwork and self-sacrifice. They continue thoughtfully exploring the ashram. But what's it got to do with Agastya? Yudhishthira wonders. I thought we are all about Agastya today. Oh, right, I forgot. Agastya. Lomish continues the Agastya story. Lomish picks up the story from where Indra kills Vritra. When news of the Asura's death gets about, his friends are very angry. In revenge, they take to terrorizing the world. Every night they wreak havoc, indiscriminately killing and butchering people. But at the first light of day, they disappear, hiding in the depths of the ocean where no one can find them. It starts to become a proper pestilence. You retire to bed thinking all is well with the world, but wake up to find mangled limbs and torsos, innards and intestines strewn all over the place. Eventually, people start phoning the complaint line of the gods. We're experiencing hard and normal call volumes. 
They press one to leave blistering messages. Look, we're trying to be reasonable, they snap at the machine, but we're tax-paying citizens. How long are we supposed to put up with this? It's your job to protect us. Lomash recounts the tale with an unsettling degree of animation. The gods realize something must be done. But what? They put out a call for proposals to be considered as a round table called Hidden Enemy. One suggestion stands out. There's only one man, the writer puts forth boldly, who has the wit and ability to solve this problem. You must recruit Augustia. I mean, here's a man who can stop mountains from growing. That's the caliber of talent required for this mission. Augustia stopped a mountain from growing? One confused attendee whispers to another. What's that all about? His neighbor's done his fieldwork in the Vindhya Mountains and knows the story well. You know the Vindhya Mountain Range that cuts across Mandhya Pradesh, dividing north and south? The other nods eagerly. Well, one time it got into a real tizzy, complaining it wasn't getting enough respect. So it started to grow, and it kept growing and growing, and no one could stop it. There was mad panic everywhere. Then Rishi Augustia got wind of the problem and talked to the mountain. Hey, listen, he was very nice about it. The missus and I are headed south for a little R&R. Do you suppose you could hold off the growth spurt until we return? The mountain was pleased with the courtesy and didn't want to be a jerk. So it held its size, waiting for Augustia. But Augustia's never returned north, you see. He and Lulu just decided to settle in the south. So the mountain's never been able to resume its growth. Crafty, the first whisperer grins. Augustia's candidacy is proposed, a compensation package debated, and the motion is made, seconded, and carried. Rishi Augustia is invited to deal with a hidden enemy problem. Nothing to it. The Rishi is most obliging. He takes a couple of days to fast without food or water. Then he goes to the ocean with a very big straw and starts to drink. Sip by sip, he drinks till he's drained the entire ocean. But isn't the ocean salt water? I can hear your mind working skeptically. And you're right, of course, but what of it? If a man can drink the ocean, surely he's mastered desalination technology. Point is, he drinks the ocean, and as the water gets sucked away as if by turbocharged vacuum, pandemonium breaks out on the ocean floor. Aquatic life gasping for air flails in the clutches of death. A great battle ensues, flying fish and seahorses and octopi. Finally, beleaguered and besieged, Vritra's supporters, now visible to all, are identified and killed. The Pandavas sleep under the twinkling sky, trying to identify the constellation of the Seven Sages. If he dragged the ocean, Draupadi whispers to Yudhishthira, where did the water go? And how did the ocean fill up again? They raise questions the next day. The gods actually have the same concerns. As they resume their travels, Lomish continues the story. After the great battle, when they've killed the enemy hidden in the ocean, they dust off their clothes before Rishi Augustia. Thanks for your help there, old chap. Couldn't have done it without you. 
you can go ahead and refill it now. But Augustia cocks an eyebrow. I've already digested everything. Refilling is up to you. Like some other superpowers plunging headlong into war, the gods realize they've neglected that most important lesson in business, always have an exit strategy. The ocean is now a graveyard of extinct marine species. Some sad-looking amphibians forage about, but the ocean beds a junkyard of wreckage. The rudders of tall ships, previously buoyant messages and bottles, the occasional treasure chest, and a ship with a broken hull, the side faintly revealing Titanic. Perplexed with the problem, the gods realized that in the haste to kill their enemies, they hadn't taught the whole drink-the-ocean strategy all the way through. They head sheepishly to the god Brahma, who consults the farmer's almanac. Says here the refilling of the oceans not for a few generations yet. Tasked to one King Bhagiratha of House Sagar. Till then, sit tight, okay? Job creation programs are launched for unemployed fishermen. The Herculean effort to refill the ocean is recounted in many Hindu texts, including the Ramayana. It's related to one of the icons of living Hindu tradition, the goddess Ganga. As will shortly be clear, the ocean in question is the Sea of Bengal that touches Myanmar, Bangladesh and India to merge further into the Indian Ocean. In the Mahabharata, the story begins with King Sagar of House Ikshvaku who notwithstanding Fable's lineage must remain a zero on our must-remember scale because after the next 10 minutes, we're never going to see him again. So, the great King Sagar is very successful in all the usual kingly affairs. An excellent invader of neighbouring kingdoms, fabulous at the hunt, awesome at enacting summary functions of the judiciary. But alas, even with two smoking hot wives, he has no children. No idea why. Seeking progeny, he solicits the assistance of higher powers. After a respectable round of tapas, he appeals to the great god Shiva, whom we already know from Draupadi's five husbands, has a quirky sense of humour. Lord, he pleads, accompanied by his two wives, I implore you, bless me with a son. The god Shiva is just returning from date night with his wife, the great goddess Uma Parvati, and is in a playful mood. Good timing. I shall satisfy your desire for sons. Your one wife shall have 60,000 boys who shall all live and die together. The other shall have one child who will be the dinnest. You can decide among yourselves who gets what. He dictates a memo to the registrar general, then heads home with the goddess for a nightcap. 60,000 sons. That's a daunting number. I'm not even sure I can count that high. But King Sagar and his wives head home exultant. They'd asked for one boy and are set to receive an entire football league, fans, managers, stadia and all. They start prepping baby rooms and buying onesies. Soon the wives start to show. The one with an adorable baby bump and the other, perplexingly, also with a modest bump, not the size of the Hindenburg. 
but nobody should doubt the word of the great god Shiva. And when the time comes, the king engages a small army of midwives to yank out his sons. One queen delivers a wiggling, wailing infant. The other, a pumpkin. What? exclaims the king. It can't be. Are you sure? Maybe it just has a big head? But the army of midwives inspect the mass, and sure enough, for all intents and purposes, it's good for pie. The king is bitterly disappointed. Throw it away. But as the pumpkin is about to be tossed into the compost, the heavenly PA system crackles. Are you bonkers? Would you toss away your own sons? An instruction manual appears in the sky, accompanied by a woman in white, demonstrating in a calm and soothing voice. Gather 60,000 earthen pots like this. In each, pour in one cup of ghee, only of the best quality. She demonstrates, measuring carefully. On low heat, warm the ghee to a rolling simmer, then remove from heat. Camera two picks up at the second counter. While that's happening, prepare your pumpkin. Slice it open, carefully removing the seeds. There should be 60,000 of them. Place one seed in each of the pots, ensuring it's fully immersed in the key, then cover and store in a warm, humid space for nine months. An image of a lush garden appears with thousands of pots lined neatly in rows. The woman disappears and the voiceover concludes with a rebuke. This is how the god Shiva disposed it. Don't do anything stupid. Duly chastened, the king and his wives are supremely happy. Soon the patter of little feet can be heard all over the city. The little darlings crawl and run and leap and jump and are so many in number, nobody dare stop them. Worse, as they grow, they're cruel and arrogant, bullying high and low alike, and short the royal pests. The one destined to be heir is, if anything, even worse. He turns out to be a sadistic brute, preying upon little kids, grabbing them by the heels and tossing them screaming into the river. The king, who cherished such hopes for his children, is now faced with a veritable mutiny. Sounds of Bob Marley's, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights, can be heard in every pub and eatery. The king makes a difficult decision. As soon as he's assured a grandson, he banishes his son from the kingdom. Don't ever show your face here again. He grooms his grandson, Anshuman, to be the heir. But his troubles are far from over. The 60,000 are such a menace that even the god's mailbox crashes from the daily deluge of complaints. They convene a press conference. There is a plan, they reassure the citizenry. King Sagar's sons will soon destroy themselves by their own misdeeds. Please be patient. A task force has been established, etc., etc. Shortly thereafter, King Sagar undertakes a horse sacrifice. What, you ask, is a horse sacrifice? Well, the Ashvamedha, or horse sacrifice, was the single most important royal ritual of ancient India, an extraordinarily prestigious event involving hundreds of participants of the two- and four-legged variety, as well as a small battalion of priests. 
Only the wealthiest and most powerful kings could afford one. It goes something like this. A king looking to proclaim or expand his power releases an especially anointed horse, who then has leave to wander wherever it will, with a helpful nudge from the king's army. Everywhere the horse wanders, the king claims that territory is his own. If you're the neighbouring king and you don't particularly want to be the king's vassal, you must go to war. Hence the king's trailing army. Think Queen Isabella of Spain sending a horse with Columbus as he sails to the Americas. Wherever it wanders, she claims that territory for Spain. You get the idea. Leading with a horse is just a more stylish way to do things. King Sagar has 60,000 sons and grand ambitions, so he plans a horse sacrifice. All goes well to begin with. The horse wanders freely, successfully defended by the king's army, all the way until it gets to the edge of what used to be the ocean. Then it disappears. The princes are mystified. They've been watching the horse every second. How could it vanish as if into air? After searching high and low, they conclude that the horse has been stolen and report back to daddy. You're a disgrace, the king berates them. Get out of my sight. Do not return here without my horse. I don't want to see you until then. He's frantic. Not only is it embarrassing bringing his military might suddenly into question, but without the horse, he can't complete his sacrifice. And an incomplete sacrifice, as we know, throws the world askew. Meteors fall from the skies. You get freak weather events. Women deliver malformed infants. Donald Trump gets a second term. The suns fan out in a quadrant-by-quadrant quadrant grid search from Tuscany to Tripoli, Bavaria to Ouagadougou. Then, in a satellite-enabled drone search, they spy a hairline fracture on the edge of the parched ocean. 24 hours and massive rigs arrive at the ocean, bearing heavy machinery, bulldozers and backhoes, multiple spindle deep ocean drilling machines. Crews get digging night and day, burrowing deep into the earth, uncaring about anything except the precious stallion. Soon, the ocean edge has a bleeding gash, miles long and deep, its creatures killed, its flora uprooted. But deep under the ocean, they spy the horse. It's like a mirage. There's a lush green pasture, and the horse is grazing peacefully beside an ancient sage seated in meditation. Hardly believing their eyes, giddy with excitement, the 60,000 dare toward the horse, ignoring the rishi seated beside it. One look, and they're dead, all 60,000 of them, going up in blazes as the sage opens his eyes. He's the rishi Kapil, a legendary figure in Hindu tradition, founder of the Sankhya school, and in our text, vocal proponent of the philosophy of Ahimsa. In our next episode, the good news, bad news scenario will be delivered to the king by our old friend, the global traveler Rishi Narada. On the bright side, he'll say, hey, they found your horse. On the glass half empty side, every last one of your sons is dead. How the king takes that news, let's find out next time, if you'll join me for another episode of the Mahabharata. Oh,